my failure to articulate this, I don't think should stand in the way of your basic point, which is that there is something very, very deep and powerful about like leaving and coming back, traveling, living somewhere else. Hi, Internet. Welcome to episode 15 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning novelist, a best-selling humorist, and I shot both the sheriff and the deputy. So take that, Bob Marley. Um, This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. Some people think no one ever changes their minds. That is not the case. So this is where I interview people who have done that, who have changed their minds. Um, On this episode, I talked to a friend of mine who I've known mainly online for, I want to say, five or six years, um, named Luke Hansen. Um, Same first name as me. Slightly different last name. Um, He was born and raised in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is the town I grew up in. So we've had that in common, although I didn't actually meet him until I had moved away from Lincoln um, through a mutual friend online, which we talk about a little bit in our conversation. Um, He's got some interesting political views. <laughs> um, he used to be what you might call a generic Republican, um, whatever that was in the late 90s, contract with America uh, type stuff. Um, but he now identifies as an anarchist. Um, anarchist in the uh, ideological sense of the word. Um, he believes that all government is illegitimate. Um, so He and I don't agree on much, um, but he's a great guy. I really enjoy talking to him, and I think you'll enjoy listening to him. He's got a very radio-ready kind of voice, um, more so than I do. So I'm sure you will enjoy our conversation. I will flip you over there right now. See you on the other side. Welcome to episode 15 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington, and this is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big things, important things, reason for that being. Sometimes I doubt that anyone is capable of changing their minds, and there honestly is some data that seems to confirm that. Um, There's a phenomenon in psychology called the backfire effect, where... um, if you present people with data that contradicts their beliefs, they will dig their heels in even deeper and reject the data, that sort of thing. Um, but it does happen. People do change their minds. We've all seen it happen. So I want to know why. This is my show. It's about 10% research project, 90% therapy for me. Um, and I'm sitting here with a friend of mine named Luke Hansen. Say hi, Luke. Howdy. That's what we say in Nebraska. <laughs> I thought that's what people said in Texas. Um, Whatever. Hey, we're like just a step smaller. 
Luke Hansen is out in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is a town I grew up in, but I did not meet him until I was out of there. Um, met him on Twitter uh, via Tyler Huckabee, I think, right? Or am I crazy? That, I believe that is correct. Yeah. Um, Tyler Huckabee, who is the managing editor, I believe, for Relevant Magazine or something like that. I think anyway. he could be described as being prolific prolific there you go um anyway mutual friend of ours um connected us we quickly learned that we agree on almost nothing (laughs) um but we agree that lincoln's an awesome town and luke is an awesome name and h is a great last initial that's the 90 percent that matters right (laughs) luke lives in beautiful lincoln and runs a software company called company cam where he will um, why don't you tell us what company cam does? Cause I'm, I'm a little, I know you do like, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, drone, I'll drone make stuff, the pitch but, very yeah. quick. My family owns a roofing company. So I come from that kind of construction background and we made uh, an app. It's sort of like Snapchat plus Dropbox for construction <laughs> companies. They take pictures, they can draw on them and comment and have conversations and it automatically organizes them and syncs them up so that they have them whenever they want to find them. And this is a big problem when you're in construction and your jobs are kind of spread all over town, trying to like keep track and accountability and what's getting done and where was that thing I needed. Um, We help with that. So it's not for everyone. But if you know someone that owns a roofing or a plumbing company, then company cam is probably for them. All right. Cool. Um, So we're going to talk today about your uh, changing political views or your changed political views. Um, what you told me, I believe, was that you started out or, or formerly were basically st- a standard Republican or at least whatever a standard Republican was before the Trump Normal era. Normal they get. No Gingrich. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Newt for something. And then you, you ended up as um, basically a... a ideological anarchist like you believe Let's say, that all government is essentially go ahead <laughs> I, I i'm already ready to quibble uh the, so yeah i anarchist i think is that that's an accurate description um like on the there's sort of like there's left and right anarchists or you know syndicalists and anarcho-capitalists and I, I would be more on the sort of libertarian anarcho-capitalist side of the equation um, though there's a lot of kind of gray area in there, but yeah, that, uh, the word government, I, I prefer the word the state. And this is one of these like <laughs> annoying quibbles, you know, but that's to say like there's functions of governance and even government that are, I think perfectly valid and like important. I think, uh, where people, you know, weirdos like me land is that the institution and the execution of taxation is fundamentally immoral and that any any sort of relationship that I have with an organization should be uh, consensual. Uh, that should be, you know, both sides are choosing to engage in that uh, arrangement, whether it be business or personal. And uh, the argument is that the relationship that we have to the state is uh, very one-sided. It is that we are to kind of comply and go along and uh, allegedly, we have some sort of say in the matter, but that's uh, practically speaking, I think we have very little. Now, 
I'll try not to make this entire thing just one giant diatribe uh, against the state. But yes, I, I, it's definitely the transition from kind of like cheering on in 2002, you know, the invasion of uh, Iraq and like deposing that horrible dictator to kind of uh, being very much now uh, anti war, especially anti wars of what I would consider to be some sort of aggression and being very opposed to the idea of the state. But we can jump into that however you want to. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, the focus of the show in general is I, I try to tell people's personal stories, you know, just like what happened to lead to your change of mind. Um, so why don't we start at the beginning, um, start at kind of how how did you arrive at kind of these neoconservative Republican in the, in the capital R sense of the word views? That's a great place to start. And it starts with uh, growing up in Nebraska and uh, kind of going to an evangelical church and and the sort of the direct connection of being a uh, evangelical and being a Republican. It, like, it was sort of all one thing to me. I think that's what the way it was in my family. We listened to like Rush Limbaugh when we were driving in the car sometimes. Like, you know, and it was just, it was kind of like the sensible place to be. Like, I, I remember arguing with my teachers in eighth grade around the time that the <laughs> were trying to steal the election, you may remember, with the hanging chat. <laughs> Actually, that might have been like, no, eighth grade was the whole uh, impeachment of that lying scumbag, Bill Clinton. And then there was the, uh, the, you know, like it's like these are the things that you like argue about with other kids at school whose parents think something else. And so um, that that I mean, I, 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 I just kind of walked into that essentially because that was the context in which I lived. Eighth grade was when Bill Clinton was. Are we the exact same age? I'm I don't know. Sure are you 35? Is your birthday on April 12th? <laughs> I am are we the same person I guess I'm, yeah no I, I guess you 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 would be april 1284 then yes or yeah okay i would i would be january 2nd 85 um so you're about wow you're so young eight, well i'll teach you about the world <laughs> <laughs> i'll help you navigate this scary place that we call earth uh, you know, for my senior position, but yeah, yes. So we're basically the same age. So you, the, these kind of world events probably hit you around the same time they hit me. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, okay. So you're a kid, you just absorb these, um, Republican views from the people around you. Is that, I mean, I don't want to be condescending, but is that fair or is that, I, yeah, I mean, I, yes, I think that's very fair. And I think that's really to be expected. I mean, we don't, I don't think we, you know, condemn someone for learning the language that their parents speak and from, you know, uh, uh, it's just the standard way of learning anything. And then it's kind of a process right. of exploration out from there. But yes, I definitely, uh, in hindsight, um, that that's what I saw, what I heard. And it, I, I, I don't want to act like it was like an extremely closed environment and I had no, you know, access to anything else, but it just, that was definitely the thing. And that's what we thought. Okay. So, I mean, my question would be then, you know, as you became an adult, is this something you ended up claiming as your own? Is there... I mean, to some degree, yeah. I, I, I wasn't... I mean, I was always interested in politics, I, especially I, I'm very interested in ideas, uh, you know, philosophy, religion, politics, like uh, just how meaning, how does it all fit together, that kind of a thing. And sure. it, it's like, as I... I don't know, got older. I want to say maybe when I was 24, 25 is really when kind of this like flip happened for me. 
Um, but it was it was a lot of the, I guess the, the story that I tell myself and how how closely this reflects exact reality is hard, you know, over time mm-hmm. uh, to remember. But it was very much, you know, you, it's like you start reading the Internet happens. You're able to all of a sudden access so much more information. And for me, I had absorbed a lot of the sort of principles, kind of these principles of like freedom and self-ownership. But then you see the like sort of inherent hypocrisy of that I think is endemic in both the left and the right is that like they kind of want to take these things and apply them in a place that fits their sort of cultural perspective, but then not in the place that doesn't fit their cultural perspective. It's just like that, that kind of hypocrisy the, the the active political hypocrisy just really rubbed me the wrong way because i i just i really value consistency like i want it to make sense top to bottom and uh and be able to explain it and i started i just you know reading on the internet and really thinking like oh this like i just couldn't get to where the sort of Republican argument was justifiable. It struck me Mm. as we have these, we're going to talk about freedom, but like, it's not going to apply to gay people. You know, it's like, it's like this, and not, that's just an example, but it's just like this, this sort of freedom, this Liberty, this thing when it's something that we're into, but if it's not something that we're into, then, you know, uh, we we don't want to have anything to do with that. And so I kind of like, it just got less and less interesting to me. And I got more and more interested in, in like the trying to build a case, like a political, like a system or an argument kind of from the ground up. And that's where I like started reading a lot of these anarchist libertarian, very skeptical of, of the state as a whole. And I I just found that more and more compelling and I could, I don't know, could talk through that, but I, it, it depends on where you want to go because anyone who knows me knows that if you get me started here, that this is kind of a, a black hole that you'll just fall into and I'll find myself four <laughs> hours later, like, you know, trying to finish my first beer while you're like shit face laying on the floor. <laughs> yeah, we are, we are getting a little ahead of ourselves. I think, um, I want to talk about your, your form reviews a little bit more before we start diving into the, into the shift. Um, absolutely. I won't, yeah, I mean, one of the questions I'm kind of I, I hate I hate the expression wrestling with, but we'll go with that. One of the questions I've been wrestling with on this show um, is this question of do we believe what we believe for quote unquote logical or quote unquote emotional reasons, and that's mm-hmm. not a distinction I'm super crazy about, but I you know I don't I don't think it's necessarily a an accurate distinction, but I think it can be a useful one for kind of hashing stuff out. Yep. Um, so these former Republican views, um, what would you say you were believe them for more quote unquote logical or more quote unquote emotional reasons? I'm also skeptical of this logical, emotional sort of dichotomy. (laughs) Like I, I I would say that there's much like, there's just more like historical in a sense of like the context of my life would be the, would be the largest sort of reason I would say. It's just like, that is the environment in which I was in. And therefore Mm -hmm. like, it's the one I'm, the, I'm most likely to believe. So I don't. I, I would have told you that it was all very logical, but I think it was much more contextual than logical. But I also think, and, and again, this is moving a little bit into the transition. But like, personality-wise, I'm very, I'm a very open person, and I don't. I, I mean that like in a sort of 
technical sense of like the big five personality traits, which I, I can't mm-hmm. list all of them probably off the top of my head, but I know openness <laughs> is one. It's like openness to new experience. And it's like mm-hmm. on average, if you talk to people from the left or the right, the left is a little bit usually on average, a little more open. And the mm-hmm. right is a little more kind of like, I want structure and borders around things and rules and that kind of a thing. And sure. I am extremely far on that sort of open side of things. And I am very low on the, like, I don't like a whole bunch of rules and borders and structure, that kind of a thing. And so I, I think that's where I, why my exploration kind of led me a little bit out. But I, to get to your sort of point, I don't, emotional is hard to say. It could be emotional because that's what my family believed and I kind of came into it. But I do think mm-hmm. that some of my identity was wrapped up in that. That's why it's hard. It was like, it's hard to move away from things that you've sort of strongly advocated for because, you know, you, you, you identify with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, because I would have thought to myself that I logically held those views. I think that was like my path away from them because I mm-hmm. like, I, I was able to like, be like, Oh, well, this is interesting. This is more compelling. Therefore, this is what I'm going to believe. But then, you know, we could be talking in 15 years and I might be saying, though I don't think I will because I would argue very <laughs> stridently that that <laughs> I, I'm an immovable object that but that uh uh that things will change over time because I'm trying to weigh them logically insofar as I can you know though like you know like that's debatable as you know of how how open we all are to new information though I'm the type mm-hmm. of skeptical person that is skeptical of that claim and like what was the context that that claim was made in people in lab coats telling me that I should you know, believe something because they have facts about it. Well, I don't believe them, you know, I, so <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I like to fall into these holes of kind of bizarre sort of skepticism or questioning. Um, <laughs> but again, sorry, Luke, I think I've, I've lost the plot here. So I'm happy for you to guide <laughs> the path of, of productive conversation. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I understand what you're, what you're saying um, that, you know, often we believe whatever, appeals to us emotionally and then find a way to argue ourselves into it logically. Um, is, or is that not at all what you're saying? That's what I'm thinking. No, that's about. yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's an element of it. It's like we, yes, we want to believe something either because other people believe it because we think, I mean, I think, I don't know, this is my sort of dim view of humanity that like most people believe things because they think that's what they're supposed to believe. That's what gets them some sort of social credit in the in the cults, like in their context that they live with their friends, with their family. And that like actually looking at something and trying to trying to assess it in a some in, in essentially a neutral way and to really come to your own conclusion is really hard it's something that we probably only think we do you know i i, I don't know that I, I i've got a long way to go there but i do think that i don't know i want to say that i'm better than average at at being willing to go against what is sort of easy i think most of us do what's easy like you see it in politics remember back in 2008 when Barack Obama was anti-gay marriage and Hillary Clinton. Like, do you, I, like it's like that all fell down the memory hole, but it just, that was yeah. the case. And then all of a sudden, at some point in time, it became more costly politically and just personally to be anti-gay marriage than pro-gay marriage. And it's just like, it's like a tipping point, just flips. And then yep. it all kind of goes down the memory hole. Like we don't, you know, ah, that was before, <laughs> like in the dark ages. And no one really remembers that. But I think that happens all the time with most of us. So we're mostly looking for signal around 
what we should think, what's okay to think, and Mm -hmm. that that's how many of these things are determined. And then we tell ourselves a story about uh, about why it's perfectly logical. (laughs) Let's get into um, why you changed your mind then. you talk. You talk some about um, growing up with these ideas. Um, can you give me an age when you started to, you know, I, I question your views? I guess in college, let's say, um, I definitely okay. started. So I moved. I, I dropped out of college when I was twenty-one, and my good friend was moving to New York City. So I moved to Harlem with him, uh, and huh. lived there for like. I want to say six or eight months, it, long enough to kind of live in New York City, but not really all that long. Sure. But that was a very, it was just an eye-opening experience. I mean, I went from mm-hmm. living in Lincoln, Nebraska, where it's like everyone kind of like looks like me. And, you know, it's just like <laughs> relatively homogenous place to then living in Harlem, where me and my roommate were like the only white people that we saw on our street ever. And <laughs> it, it, it was just... A, it, it, in New York City, it's just a different culture than Nebraska. It was just a different experience, which was sure. which I loved again because like that's my, I really do love kind of getting out and seeing the way that other people do things. I'm somewhat of a xenophile, I think, but uh, <laughs> that was a time where all of a sudden the sort of standard culture around me was not what it was in Lincoln. It was very different. And the way people talked, I mean, th- that was sort of like a, I remember President Bush. I remember Katrina happening while I was in New York. And oh, wow. that was, uh, it was sort of just this hearing a lot of other perspective and starting to like, I don't know how explicitly kind of questioning this stuff, but uh, I, I remember that being like a kind of a cultural almost turning point in my life where the context just shifted 180 degrees. And it, it was, it was opening. Uh, but I would say that the kind of I, I, the, a couple years later, my wife and I moved to Spain. We got in the intermediate time, uh, 2008, we got married. And then 2010, uh, we moved to to live in Madrid, Spain for a year and be teachers. And that was a great time. Go to Spain. Spain's the best. Uh, <laughs> but I just for whatever reason, I had a lot of time to read. I read a lot. And that was like, that's when I became radicalized, uh, was, uh, <laughs> doing all the, uh, internet reading, writing on the train in, in Madrid and, and kind of, you know, fortifying this new anarchist view. Hmm. Yeah. I'm kind of really interested, um, in just how this idea of how moving around geographically, like not being rooted makes it easier to change your mind. Um, the second episode of the show, I had a a woman on Rachel Oliven, um, who, um, we, we talked about, uh, her shift in her, um, religious views of how she used to be, you know, quote unquote, egalitarian is now quote unquote, complementarian. Um, and I, I, you know, I asked her the question of like, you know, was, was it easy to change your, to change your mind about this? And and she said to me, yeah, I mean, it, it was because, I, you know, her husband's in the air force. So we were just moving around, you know, every couple of years. So I didn't have to um, feel like I was, uh, you know, had to quote unquote, come out to anyone or betray anyone with my views. I could just kind of flip the switch. Um, and I thought that was just really interesting. I completely, that, that makes so much sense to me. I don't know if I've thought about this like explicitly before, but that there is a, I, I remember the feeling in New York city of being anonymous. 
of mm-hmm. I'm not going to run into someone from high school. Uh, I, it's just like I'm here and no one knows who I am. And there, there is a freedom in that. Though you weirdly do run into people that you know in New York City, like it's it's it's, it's like bizarre, like how it's huge it is, yet how small it is. But yeah, yeah. that that feeling was interesting. It's kind of a feeling of freedom, and mm-hmm. I, so yes, I I definitely relate to that. But there's also the element of like being in a different culture in a different context. And I, I don't know, like I remember growing up and thinking like, man, America's like the greatest country. Like I bet everyone else just feels <laughs> like bummed that they had to grow up in, you know, in, in, in France or somewhere like because they're not the greatest and we clearly are the greatest. And kind of like that, that's such a insular, small, there's a sophisticated word that I could use here, but it's just, it's so small thinking, you know, you just don't realize what's out there and you go to Spain and you realize no one cares. Like no one cares. No one cares about the United <laughs> States or you or where you're from. Like in that, and then seeing the way that people do things and why things are different. And I think learning a language can be helpful here too. Like this, I, I, I speak Spanish like passably. I'm not going to say I'm good, but there is a, a variety of experience of meeting different people and then really putting people to ideas. And I like, give me a minor moment on a soapbox here around social media, which sure. again, I'm a huge social yeah. media advocate, actually, like I, in the sense of I think it has allowed us to organize in different ways for people to meet mm-hmm. like minded people where they otherwise would have had a very hard time doing that and all these niche subcultures and that it's it's kind of it's truly amazing. But we're not engaging with real people. We're engaging with categories of people, which don't even amount to people. Like we say things like the left, the right, <laughs> like, like black, white, gay, straight. We have all these labels that are, we like broadly apply. And then we write something, you know, angry about it versus in the real world, there's real people. And you find that you get along with almost all of them because we've, largely share the same values and we we in the in the actual world with actual people we know how to get along with each other and we don't really try to tell each other how to live too much or you know we we figured that part out but you separate that with a screen and an abstraction and all of a sudden Mm. like the humanity has disappeared from the category that you're Mm. talking about and it's yeah but when you travel that is in your face the humanity of like oh these people like are different than me they they like different food they have a different religion they have a different political ideas but hey i really like them and they're normal and they're just like me and that there is a mm-hmm. permission there to think differently yeah yeah i think probably probably the biggest disadvantage of social media is it reduces people to their ideas and most of us have very very bad ideas floating around in our heads yeah, most of you guys um, yeah yeah i know of course i mean yeah i'm the guy who's perfectly <laughs> logical no but you're right like it's uh, there there yeah there's definitely a a humility that we could all use like i've tried hard to be less of a, a douchebag i think is the right word uh, <laughs> online you know like i don't need to like say every opinion that i have and try to getting some I, I, that th- that was definitely like a stage you know like you you convert let's say i'll, I'll, I'll use religious terminology here converting <laughs> and then you become like a loud advocate like you're an apostle like running you know <laughs> telling everyone how bad they are and how like dumb they are and mm-hmm. then you realize that that's like so tedious and that and no <laughs> one likes it it doesn't work it doesn't convert anyone at all and then you need to step back and realize okay like what can i control 
I certainly can't control who the president is or, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that I, that are way out. Of, and again, I, not I mean, to get too can, deep into voting. I live in a swing state. So. Yeah. You also can. Uh, yeah. Let me just remind you that unless the election hinges on exactly one vote, then your vote was literally irrelevant. It did not matter. But uh, we'll save that for later uh, when I alienate the rest of yeah. the audience. Um, uh, yes. Like, uh, that, that, so that's controlling yourself, worrying about, you know, myself, you, then you have kids and it's like, there, there, there's just sort of level of maturity, but I am, uh, yeah, I, I've, again, I feel like I've lost the plot other than just to go on that minor rant. <laughs> yeah, but no, um, I mean, there is, um, there is this weird phenomenon of when people interact only via text or whatever, like all the humanity is drained out of the interaction. Um, yes, I read a wonderful little, uh, Hey, it was probably a tweet to be honest, but it was a couple who was <laughs> trying to, trying to date in the modern age. Right. So like I, I miss uh -huh. the whole digital dating thing. Cause, um, I've been married for a long time, but, mm -hmm. uh, they, they, this couple agreed to never text each other. They were only going to text hmm. like for purely logistical concerns, like, are you know, Hey, I'm sitting in the back or something like that. Like, but they were never <laughs> going to do the thing of like, Hey, miss you. Like they would only have anything other than purely logistical conversations via the phone or in real, <laughs> in, in, in like in person. And it was all mm -hmm. to avoid not just the miscommunication, but the sort of like need to be constantly like checking in in a sense and mm -hmm. that it was like very freeing. And I thought, I thought that there was a lot of wisdom in that. Um, but mm -hmm. I think it alludes to the point that you're making, which is that like, there's so much room for interpretation when it's merely text that mm -hmm. we can project our, like assume the intentions of the other person or misrepresent okay. or misunderstand and, or perfectly well understand it. And the other person didn't think of us as a human because we were just a category. Yeah. I mean, face-to-face -face interaction, there's that, like, even if this person I'm interacting with is 100% wrong about everything, you still see the face, you still recognize this is a human being in front of me. Um, and obviously like in meat space, genocide still happens and stuff. So it's not a cure-all, but it is. Um... <laughs> yeah. Like um, on average, it, it's it's if if you could just push the delete key, um, and and do genocide, it would happen a lot more often. I think it's the point we're making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, I mean, um, this is a tangent, but one of my one of the <laughs> most interesting stories I've come across, and I wrote about this some um, for Christ and Pop Culture, is um, Larry Flint and Jerry Falwell were actually like really good friends later in life. And obviously, you know, like I'm not a huge fan of either guy, but Larry Flynn is this sleazy pornographer for pornographer is the word I'm looking for. Jerry Falwell is, you know, he's like a Southern Baptist televangelist. A sleazy um, pornographer. So, so it's a match made in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> in that sense, they had, they had this no, but, in common. Yeah. No, they, I mean, they hated each other. Like they sniped at each other from his pulpit and his magazine, respectively, like incessantly. Um, but when they finally met up on uh, Larry King Live, I think, um, Jerry Falwell, you know, he says, well, I'm just going to go for it. And the first thing he does when they meet is he just gives Larry Flint a big hug, um, which is a little bit ridiculous. But um, from that moment on, like they started interacting face to face and they become like they became like besties, um, which is just I, I mean, it's That's, you know, it's it's wild what interacting yeah. face to face and being able to 
you know, interact bodily with someone will do. Um, There's a lot of opportunity there. I mean, I, I don't know. We would agree on very, I don't want to say very little, like it's, I, we probably actually agree on a whole bunch with a very like mm-hmm. minor deviations about the means of accomplishing certain things that we would think as like good things to do. But when you meet someone in person, you're just a lot less likely to be suspicious of their motives uh, than you mm-hmm. are, I think, outside of that. Though I'm very suspicious of Jerry Falwell's motives. I would like to just <laughs> make that abundantly clear. I don't know what he's up to. I probably don't like it. Well, he's dead now, so he's not up to much. Okay, but, there you uh... go. I, uh, <laughs> but never mind. I'm sure he was a great guy, and whoever is carrying on that legacy is probably the one, you know messing it up for the rest yeah. of us. Yeah. I mean, and that, that was one of the interesting things that um, Larry Flint had to say about him was that, you know, at, at the core, we're both just salesmen, you know, we're both just selling stuff to the masses, um, which I don't disagree with Larry Flint about, but um, anyway, yeah, well, you've talked a lot about um, how reading changed your mind. Do you want to talk about some of the stuff you, uh, you were reading at the time or what was I reading? You know, okay. I think uh, Ron Paul, you know, God bless him. Uh, Ron Paul, our hero. <laughs> no, but like a lot of, I kind of was hearing, it was like around that time, like the sort of 2008, 2010, 2012, he was saying a lot of stuff that I thought like made a little bit more sense than what I was hearing otherwise. And so I started reading, mm-hmm. I know some of his stuff. I started reading stuff from a lot of stuff from the, the Mises Institute, Mises.org, which is kind of like a economics uh, anarchist kind of, place where people write things and hmm. i read I thomas soul books I, I really i read a lot of economics i was really into economics just fascinated me and the study of like why do people do certain things and why like like kind of really looking deeper into things because there's a lot of things that sound really good um uh like bernie sanders is saying all these things all the time and it's like trying to get underneath of like okay, how does it all really work? What, like, so that, that that's where I, I, I just read a ton. Like I would, I don't know. I have all sorts of weird opinions now about like intellectual property law and just things that I've just dove into because I find them interesting. And mm. a lot of that informed, and a lot of it, like, honestly, my disdain for politics in general is this, is because of the sort of lack of nuance. Like it's almost all character assassination and zero mm-hmm. talking about the issues. And I don't know that you can blame any certain, any one politician for that, but that's like the entire game, which I find to be extremely mm-hmm. boring and useless <laughs> almost. So like, it's like very bad for us that that's the case. Whereas there's mm-hmm. so much interesting stuff under there to read about and talk about. Um, but it's like, that doesn't get you anywhere. Where what what gets you somewhere? Mm-hmm. Character assassination. Uh, so that yes, I, a ton of. I mean, I could run through like books and authors and things that I, I found really compelling, but uh, economics in general was really where I like I dove really 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 deep. I could talk about Bitcoin and monetary policy and I, that's stuff that like I find fascinating that actually puts people immediately to sleep. It's like hypnotism. It's just like <laughs> they just like go down because they don't want to hear about it. All right, so why don't we uh, why don't we talk a little bit more about the the logical emotional thing? Um, would you say your 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 initial reasons for for questioning your your views were more logical, more emotional? What would you say? Um, yeah, that is a hard question. I I, I think both. You know, like you run into it's kind of like you said, like you're presented with data 
that that would contradict your opinion and your immediate reaction mm-hmm. is to try to justify it. You want to like slide it mm-hmm. into a slot that makes sense where it all fits together. <laughs> but, um, and, and, and that's like, that's, I think probably an emotional reaction. And I would definitely argue that overwhelmingly we have an emotional reaction first and then, and then we have a, a logical reaction, either second or not at all. <laughs> so I wanted it to, to work, but then it's kind of kept not working. And there's areas where I would see it not working that like made me upset. Like the, <laughs> the, the drug war and the, like the sort of the, anything that, the, the, that our government has declared a war on, whether that be like <laughs> Iraq, drugs, any poverty. Like I would think that all of these things are like, you start to look at it and you realize how bad those things are and how much worse they kind of make things. And, and, and that like that kind of drives an emotional reaction, which then makes you want to like learn more and makes you want to act. And it, like, it's kind of like the heart of activism in a sense, like you see this injustice and you mm-hmm. want to do something. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I, again, I want to think that it was very logical and, and clean, but I definitely like the, like the sort of feeling of in, Dignance, I think is a word. Um, I, I just remember that very clearly of like, like this is so messed up and like I I need to be opposed to it, which is very, it was based in logic, but a very emotional, very emotional response. Why don't you, why don't you talk a little bit more um, about, about, I don't know, let's, let's say the drug war, for instance, what, oh, what dear. was it about the drug war or do we not want to go? No, sorry. This? I mean, uh, like I, at the risk of yelling into this microphone. No, uh, I think things that have always really bothered me are things that people think they're doing for a good reason. Like they sort of have mm. a clear conscience in their uh, action, but something that has a really bad outcome. Um, it's like that mm. cat, like, like, I don't know. It's a category of thing that like is uh, it just like drives me crazy. And I look at something like the drug war. It's like people would take this sort of simplistic view. Hey, it's bad for people to be addicted to, you know, quote unquote drugs, which, I, you know, mm-hmm. is a pretty non uh, controversial statement. Um, and so <laughs> then they take the step of like, well, then, hey, if we make drugs illegal, then less people will be addicted to them. And hey, we were doing a good thing. And it's like, there's a whole bunch in that last little bit that is, that mm. is assumptions. And that I think is just plain wrong. Like that has been like, not only wrong from what I, from a moral perspective, but wrong from a, a consequentialist. Like it just hasn't worked out that way. Uh, mm. That, that really like bothers me. And so there's a lot of people that like, it's one thing if I talk to, you know, my dad or someone and he has this perspective and I, I just tend to think that people of that, the, boomers, so to speak, are largely set in their ways. And it's, it's, it's hard <laughs> to change their mind because, you know, there's a culture, there's, I, there's just so many factors at play. But for me, I was looking at this saying like, okay, this, this isn't working. Like, like we have so many people in prison disproportionately affecting minority communities. You've got kids growing up without fathers. You just got this, like, it's just like really, really bad in a certain area. It's clearly 
you can get drugs. Like, trust me, kids, like you, they're available. They didn't go away. They just got a lot more expensive. <laughs> we have these gigantic drug cartels in Mexico that have literally bigger armies than the government. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's it just like, it just, it just doesn't work, you know? And, 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 mm-hmm. and it's not working and it hasn't worked. And it's like ruining communities from a whole bunch of different angles. And it's like, I don't, there, there are people that should know better. I don't expect any one person ever to know better in a sense, you know, like we all have lives to live. Like it doesn't, it doesn't actually help us be better parents or make more money or be better at our job to know why the drug war is, is a horrible catastrophe. Right. But there's people that should understand this, that clearly can, like they have access to the information and they, mm-hmm. for reasons of, I don't know, voting, like I, I really, I don't know. I'm again, this is where the emotional part kicks in. I'm getting really worked up because mm-hmm. like this just really <laughs> bothers me is that it's like it, it just doesn't work and it causes more problems than it solves. And there's other places like Portugal had the worst heroin epidemic in the world. People were dying left and right, overdosing on heroin right around the turn of the century, right around the year 2000. And they instituted mm-hmm. a complete drug decriminalization. And they now have some of the lowest overdose and heroin usage levels in Europe. My wife and I rode around. We lived in Spain for a while. And recently we went back and traveled around. We went to Portugal. And our tour guide um, like just independently was telling us like, oh man, used to be so terrible. Like this is where all the drug addicts hung out and here just showing us all these areas. And he's like, there would just be bodies there. And he's like, and there, you know, it's like completely cleaned up. We solved that problem. It's amazing. And they did it by allowing people to seek treatment as opposed to making these people criminals. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's like, it's, I don't know. There's so many, uh, I don't, this is maybe the fundamental, my problem with with like politics as it is, is that Mm -hmm. there's these solutions, but, but like getting to them is so difficult because of the sort of entrenched interests, like the amount of money made off of the drug war and the amount of sort of political control that's wrapped up in that is so much that it's, I don't know, like we just can't, we can't do the right thing now. Now, anyway, and and again, there's people that disagree with me and I get that. So I, I try not to like, that's, I try not to separate the person and the fact that like, you could totally disagree with me and say like, oh man, we should criminalize alcohol and, you know, lock everyone in prison. And it's like, (laughs) I've come through the sort of other side of the looking glass to realize, oh, someone disagrees with me. They're not a bad person. They don't have bad intentions. You know, they, they, they want usually what's best, but they just have a different idea of how to get there. And so we need to try to figure out how to have that conversation without me saying like, no, you don't want poor people to get access to medical care. Therefore you are a bad person, which is the sort of like, (laughs) we immediately want to make a moral argument about the person on the other side. And, um, sorry, I lost the, lost track of the drug war there, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's like one of these things that seems like we should all be able to get behind it and we just can't. I want to poke at that a little bit though, if I could, um, it's your podcast, buddy. So you, you, yeah, I know you quibble with me a, a little bit. I want to, I want to be clear on what we're talking about here. Um, do you identify as an anarchist, or would you? Yes. So you, you you would say all uses of the state are fundamentally immoral. Um, and when I when we talk about Portugal, um, you know, it, it sounds like the state was being used badly. Okay, I agree with you on that. You know, like obviously the state was being used uh, deliberately or otherwise as a tool to um, 
you know, facilitate drug addiction so that people could profit off of it. Okay, that's bad. Um, but then they change things so that now, you know, drug addiction is no longer or usage of drugs is no longer a crime. Drug addicts have access to the healthcare they need so they can get off of the stuff. Hopefully things are better, but that's not a removal of state power. It's just state power being used differently. Um, and, and so I, you know, I'm with you on X use of government is wrong. I'm not willing to go with you to therefore all use of government is wrong. Uh, yeah. So, so do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that, I do. Yeah. And yeah. I, and again, I don't like, I certainly don't anticipate that I'm going to, you know, convert you over to Luke's anarchist utopia, <laughs> <laughs> like in this podcast. Uh, and I, you know, and like, that's the, obviously a joke, but like, I, I don't see utopia on the other side of this. Uh, I, I like, let's take your example of here in the state, like the state is real. The state does a lot of things that are important to do and that they inevitably do good things along with bad things. Like it's like anything like technology or something. It's like there's there's good and then there's bad. And you're trying to whether it's not necessarily find the balance, but, you know, get more of the good and less of the bad. I think the nature of the state and that's why I was clear to talk about taxation. And it's not because I'm like, I want my money and, you know, these these you know, giving it away to all these poor people. And I can't stand that. It's, it's not that it's much more of like the nature. Like I would argue that the reason that we are rich is because we all work for each other. Like the way that you make money is by working for other people, doing something that other people directly benefit from that they'll, that they'll usually they'll pay you for. And that, that, that incentive structure is, what allows this system to co sort of keep working. And mm -hmm. when you are not serving your customer in the market, and I again, I think this is the most important part of the market, is that when you are not serving your customer, you are done. You don't get to raise your budget. Mm -hmm. You don't get to complain about XYZ. Like either someone voluntarily interacts with you and, 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 and you know, patronizes your business, or you are done. That's the law of the market. And you don't get mm -hmm. a take. You don't get to say that something is important to do. And therefore, I'm going to take from you to do it. You have to make an offer. And that offer has to be accepted. Now, again, there's a million rabbit trails we could follow down here. And I'm, I'm happy. I, I This is what I live for, man. It's talking through like all of this kind of thing. But um, so I think that as a as like a as the architecture of a game, let's say, uh, of the game that we're all playing, that that having an institution in the middle that gets to take and that gets to sort of live outside the rules in a sense that has different rules apply to it is fundamentally unstable that 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 will break the game there will be wars and revolutions and, and again th this is all part of human nature but i would argue that 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 state power accelerates that towards sort of like violence and uh these zero sum political power games that make us hate each other. Uh, whereas the market is always pushing that to more acceptance. Like I would say in the market, you pay for your own prejudices. You, if, mm -hmm. if you want to block people out of let's again, I'm going to, I, the story that I'm, I'm going to say some history here that's probably not 100% accurate, but I think it's basically accurate. <laughs> if I'm asked to provide evidence, I will. But something like the minimum wage was 
an explicitly racist policy at, at the time. And it was around the fact that because of other racism and Jim Crow and the, and, and the Civil War and the, that, that history, it was cheaper to hire uh, black people than it was to hire white union workers. They would work for less money. And so like on a sort of pure productivity basis, like it was more beneficial for your business, for your bottom line to to hire black people than to hire white union workers. And this was a problem for racist white people. And so they conspired to create a wage floor where you can't hire anyone under this certain wage. And therefore, it made more sense if you had to pay a certain amount to hire the person with more training, more history, you know, whatever, which was the sort of white union worker who'd been doing this job for 20 years. And when it comes down to it, we are all overwhelmingly greedier than we are um, racist, sexist, uh, anti-gay. I'm trying to think, okay, you know, when it comes to our own money, we're perfectly happy to uh, keep more of it than to try to push our sort of idiotic prejudice out onto the world. And I find that to be exactly the opposite of the case when it comes to something like voting. When you have zero skin in the game, when it costs you exactly nothing, you can just circle a little circle on a piece of paper and offer your opinion that, that I, why should I care about that? I don't know, but you get to say, you get to say whether uh, gay people can get married. You get to say whether X, Y, Z person can do, you know, X, Y, Z thing. You get to have an opinion on it that in my opinion, you should not. It costs you nothing in the real world. It costs you something, right? If you want to treat people badly in the real world, tell everyone how to live and try to like impose your view on how everyone else should be, then it costs you. So you don't do it. And you see it all the time that people who would strongly politically disagree and probably scream horrible things at each other uh, via Twitter, you know, uh, metaphorically scream, uh, all caps type things, um, will interact with each other in the real world in some sort of business setting where there's a cost to being an asshole and they won't be an asshole. They will be a perfectly easy, normal person to get along with. And, and so I'm kind of, I've taken this thing pretty sideways here, but it's like when the relationship is voluntary, when the relationship is voluntary, then everyone's incentives are to give other people the benefit of the doubt, to behave and to carry on that way. And when they are involuntary, those incentives go away. Now, I understand that this isn't the top to bottom argument for like Luke's anarchist utopia, but it's these, this is the sort of type of idea that tells me that we need a more sustainable game to play that does not involve zero-sum politics at the level that we're playing them. And I think that I just, I worry a lot about, I don't know, this continual polarization and the way that we like, I, I, we're living in our own little bubbles of, of information and we're getting more and more frustrated with the people that disagree with us. And, and I, I'm not exempting myself here. Like I, I know that I'm somehow a part of this. I'm try not to be, but it's just like, I think that this, this shit is dangerous. And we see that it explodes like every 80 years and there's some big war, there's some big thing. And we find that like Germans and the French and the Americans are trying to all kill each other for what reason and to what purpose? Because like some political leader has some aspirations of something and we think that we're above it now. And I'm afraid that we aren't. I'm afraid that when it comes down to it, um, you know, it'll be the Russians or it'll be someone else. And we'll, we'll all get on board with like, uh, doing the bad thing because, uh, you know, it's important to do that. Anyway, rant over, 
or at least postponed temporarily. <laughs> so do you do you really blame the existence of government for the existence of war then? Because I'm not sure that's a path I'd be willing to follow you down. <laughs> no. Uh, so no. And that's why like I like kind of hysterionics. I like uh, <laughs> getting really loud and dramatic about things. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't. I know. And this is why I say, like, there's not utopia on the other side of this. Like, I do argue mm -hmm. that that the environment has a the environment and the incentives of the environment have an incredible amount of effect on the behavior of people. And that if you put people mm -hmm. in a certain environment with certain incentives and they're playing a certain game, like we're all playing the game of we go to the store and we hand people money and like, you know, like that, like we will people will overwhelmingly do that. Whereas if you put them in a different environment, they will, will behave very differently. And it's not because they're fundamentally, I think we're all fundamentally the same. Right. But, but it's because of like the nature of the sort of arrangement in a sense. So I think that with, in a world with a whole, with, we, we live in, I would argue that we live in some sort of an anarchy. We live in an anarchy of states, right? There's all these states. Uh, and I say that not like the United States, but like, like, you know, Germany, France, the United States, yeah. North Korea, Russia. It's like there's all these different governments which claim these different sort of rights and they are in anarchy with one another. Like they, you know, they don't, they different power, different places, that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say that the, our, I think the religion of this country is like the really core religion of this country is like democracy and that our sort of fundamental trust in the state and democracy and the fact that we have all these states makes us more likely to go to war than otherwise. If not for this large unifying government of the United States, if we had 50 small governments, let's say 50 states, we had 50 state governments and we were 50 countries, so to speak, what are the chances that one of those countries would be trying to go to war with Iran? I mean, I think it's lower. <laughs> like, I, 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 it's mm -hmm. not zero, you know, like it's, it's, it's not the case that, that there would be no conflict or anything like that. But I think that these like sort mm -hmm. of massive scale uh, conflicts are part of this sort of problem of the centralization of power and that the more that you decentralize mm -hmm. that power, you will always have conflicts. They will just be smaller by their nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, like in the same way that two people can get into a fist fight, right? But if half of the town is Catholic and half is evangelical or whatever, or Protestant, I think is the word they used to use, um, then there can be a lot more um, sort of systemic like violence and so, again, it's not purely mm -hmm. that I'm arguing. I, I am I, uh, fully opposed to the state as an institution that we uh, respect. But I, I don't think it's the source of all of these evils. But I think that, like, it promotes these tendencies. Look, I guarantee if you look into your mind, you have accused, mentally accused Donald Trump of trying to start a war because of something that's going on locally to try to detract attention from that. And that like and we understand that it literally works, that if we can create this exterior enemy, that that. Uh, that that like takes attention away from the sort of other thing. And it's like a unifying force uh, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I think we all kind of know that. And it doesn't, again, this is not the comprehensive uh, argument for anarchy, but it is the, it, it it's like another one of these, I would argue consequences of our, like the allow the power that we allow the state to have that uh, we still have these, not that we are having a giant war, but we have the potential of it. Mm -hmm. 
I think my beef with that, I guess, is that, you know, if, if anarchy is this idea that, you know, power should not exist, I'm like, okay, fine. Like, in principle, I can get behind that. But in reality, that seems to me like saying, like, matter shouldn't exist. Energy mm. shouldn't exist. Like, the universe shouldn't exist. Like, power exists whether you want it to or not. Like, if I walk into the room where you are and I pull a gun and put it to your head, like, I have power over you whether you like that or not. Like, it's just a thing. Totally. Um, and, there, I mean, it's it just seems to me that people will always be seeking power yes um, i totally by the nature of <laughs> i mean i'm I, and i totally agree with you and this is again i i, I want to like ask for forgiveness from the audience that i'm not the perfect uh person to to bring this message you know i'm i'm a flawed uh interlocutor i think that's a person who talks right like i'm trying to use fancy words to sound <laughs> smart here um but like you know i totally agree with you like I, I take human evil for granted, right? I, 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 mm -hmm. that, that, that is like our sort of capacity for doing evil and for wanting power over other people. Like I, I, that is, that is like automatic in the way that greed is or like sexual desire. Like these things are, it's not like you can get rid of them. But I think mm -hmm. that like, if you take something like the, the sort of extreme side of this, which like, let's say the Soviet Union or Mao's China or North Korea or somewhere where the state like tries to just tries to do everything right. Like they, you know, they want to decide everything. They want to own you, your kids, what you can like just mm -hmm. top to bottom that like we, we would, I think almost all agree that that's like worse than it, than we have it right now. That like having a less mm -hmm. powerful state and is better than having a more powerful state, at least in that regard. Now, I, we can, mm -hmm. I can also imagine a situation where an individual family is a terrible family. You know, the father is abusive and evil and whatever. And that like, if the state has the power to stop that, that's actually good, right? Because like, what, what mm -hmm. I care about much more than like state power, local power, uh, individualism, anarchy, whatever is, is like, I care about good, right? I want, I want, I want good to happen and I want evil to, to not, and I want good to prevail over evil. There is Controversial no stand. Yeah. But. Yeah. You look at me, I'm out <laughs> on a limb here. Um, but it's like, it's, it's, it, so it's like the structure of the thing. We can't, if we just like abolished the, the, the United States of America, it's like, I don't actually think things would like get better, especially not right away. Like there has mm -hmm. to be in the same way that like, you can't just give democracy. I'm doing the quote finger thing, give democracy to, uh, let's say Iraq and all of a sudden like, Hey, women have all these rights. And like, it, it doesn't actually work that way. Right. Like there has mm -hmm. to be a sort of understanding of the value of that. And an, uh, like, and, and that's like, I would argue that's what's standing between us and pure totalitarianism. It's not like literally the constitution on a piece of paper. It's our sort of shared understanding of why individual people matter, even if they don't have a ton of power, you know, that, that, allows us to carry forward and for this to be again a really good place and i want to be clear about a couple of things that, that kind of get lost sometimes i for one i want to separate the word anarchy from chaos because most people when they hear mm -hmm. anarchy like they picture just like this chaos of like things are exploding and people <laughs> are running everywhere it's like that though i'm using the word anarchy much more technically which is like it literally means without rulers that's what anarchy mm -hmm. means so it's like the idea that there wouldn't be political rulers specifically and there's all sorts of theory on how the things could be organized if it wasn't around like a local uh political monopoly but 
I'll save that a little bit. I also want to hedge against this sort of idyllic version of the past. Like there's people who, especially on the right, this is popular. And then people who kind of have my general belief, they want to talk about like, oh, back when the constitution was written, we were so free and it's blah, 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 you know, which is like almost (laughs) all garbage because yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were like a, a property owning white guy, you paid less taxes. That's basically what it was. It wasn't, it, it wouldn't really the deal, you know, if you were black or a woman or gay or like you start like naming down these things. So I, I, I really do think like we, we are the luckiest people to ever live. Like we live in the most amazing time where we're overwhelmingly free, where we have amazing technology. I mean, it's just so, we are so blessed that I think we, very much take for granted like how that comes to be like we we really do think that it's kind of automatic that if you just let things go that like oh like people just like invent things and get rich and like that's just the nature of it and that like we should all have an iphone and it whereas that's a i think of that not as a stark departure but like it's a very much a departure from the past it's very much connected to this idea of 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 sort of individual freedom of thought and of of finances and of movement and of property ownership like that that's that that's the story that i'm telling is that like these are Mm -hmm. things lead to one another and that that we don't get to completely take it for granted like we we all just assume that like the lights are going to come on and it's all just going to keep working um and that we can change everything and we can sort of cut the system out from underneath and that it'll all keep going and i'm i'm really skeptical of that but again I'm not like super romantic about the past. I'm excited about the future. But if when I look, if I think like 10 generations or whatever, let's say 500 years into the future of which I I would argue we can see almost nothing. Like the only thing that will be largely constant is that human beings will still be basically like we are now. Like we're still going to want basically what we want. You know, we're going to have the same foibles and and nature that we have now overwhelmingly. And I personally am worried about the like we're getting so technologically strong yet we are so sort of like morally like weak like like we we, we have not remotely improved our especially our institutions in the way that we need to to catch with the technology like we've got all these nuclear weapons pointed at each other and i feel like like unless we figure out how to live better more sustainably together um, from a, from like a, and, and I'm not even talking like ecologically, that's also important, but like our relationships, our, our governance, our inter country relationships, like we, I would argue we need to like try to depoliticize that to try to, to, to decentralize power because it, I, I, I mean, the next sort of big war which there, and again, it sounds ridiculous to even say that. I know people like we just assume that it's not going to happen, but like history to me shows it happens. Like we get riled up, mm. we come at each other, and now we've got nuclear weapons. And it's like, it's really scary to me. And I think that, like, I don't know exactly the path here, but we have to figure out how to decentralize power. So I'm sort of an unrepentant, like, I don't know, globalist is the right word, but I think these, like, that, that these giant global corporations, on net it's not that they don't do bad things they do a lot of bad things but i think they are on net good for the world and largely because they Mm -hmm. take some power away from states 
And they have mm. an incentive towards getting along and towards trade happening. Um, that's how they make money. They don't make money from war overwhelmingly. They don't make money from us hating each other. Like they are a, a way of decentralizing power around the world that I think is basically a good thing, even though they individually can do a lot of bad things in a sense. So sorry, I, I, that was again, another very deranged crooked rant. Um, but it's a look inside the mind of someone who thinks they're being logical. Yeah, I mean, and I don't necessarily entirely disagree with you about that. Um, I think my cynical take on that would be that corporations are answerable to shareholders. Like they exist to make money and customers for the select group of people. And customers, sure, <laughs> but ulti ultimately to shareholders, right? Like the, the customers aren't directly making decisions for uh, for corporations. A well-designed democracy, in theory, is answerable to everyone, including people who don't have money to buy stock and don't have money to buy products. My, my issue, I think my issue with corporate power is that it necessarily shuts out anyone who is economically disempowered. Yeah. So, and, and again, there, just to be clear, there's no utopia on the other side of this. Like there's <laughs> it, it, like, it's not going to be great for everyone. And, and like the way I tend to think about that is that let's say a corporation wants to use you, right? Because they do, they want to either, they want you to buy their stuff. They want to employ you so that you on net produce more than they pay you, you know, so that they make money off of you while, you know, but then I guess you make some money. So I like, there is no perfect system here, and <laughs> I, I can't like say that I mean, it would I be could, great I for everyone. To, I could point to corporations that like gladly l use literal slaves um, directly or indirectly. I mean, Nestle is a big example, um, or basically anyone who's producing chocolate right now is kind of shrugging at slave labor at best. You know? Yeah, and I, um, again, the, this isn't to say that corporations are fundamentally moral. I think the value of large international corporations is that they act as a ballast against the natural incentive of states, which is to fight with each other, uh, to mm -hmm. play a zero-sum sure. political game. And it's not that they're going to act morally in every case or the, whatever. Now, I like we as, as, let's say, consumers or just normal people, we don't per se uh, have control over what, how Nestle decides to treat people at wherever, like, and again, I don't know a whole bunch of this top to bottom. Um, in general, I like, for example, if Nike's making shoes, like in Bangladesh, which I'm like a little more familiar with, um, mm. those will not be great working conditions as we see them. But what we frequently don't see is the alternative. And I, again, right. I don't want to morally yeah. exempt Nike, but I know that when they close down their factory, sometimes that sends a lot of kids into like child sex work or it's like it, it, it mm -hmm. it's it's like we, we can't you can't compare against the perfect. But again, I, I'm not here mm -hmm. to to defend corporations as the sort of morally superior structure of a firm. I think there's a lot of there, there's problems all over the place. What I'm here to say and what I've sort of realized is that instead of screaming about this on Twitter or really getting hyperbolic, you know, I love it. I like in person, I like being just generally controversial and it's fun to, to just discuss this stuff and challenge people and, 
and it's to me it's just not boring but it's that what am i responsible for like how do i treat the people that i work with how does this manifest itself like in my life and that's really what i can control so i focus a lot more energy there and I look around and I think like we do, we just need like more of this. Like I'm in competition for hiring people all the time. It gets hard to hire good people who are invested. They want to work hard. Like, like, and the fact that I'm in competition means that I have to do well. I have to make a good offer. People have an opportunity to leave. And again, that, so that my, when I'm, when I have a, issue with the state, it is always around its sort of unilateral decision-making power that like you cannot leave its authority. You, you are you are completely subject to it. You are not like an agent. You don't get to enter into an agreement. You are the subject. You are told the way that it will be. And that th- th- there, it may be the case, I could be wrong here, that it may be the case that that's necessary at some level, you know, like that the, the, there is no way to have that to have it work out without some sort of centralized political power. Um, that's possible. Like I don't think that's right, but hey, I'll, I'll take it. I, but I do think <laughs> we need to minimize it, and that the more, um, that that the more that we are kind of consensually agreeing that we're coming to a vol- entering into a voluntary relationship relationship, the better that is for all of us. I don't know. I feel like, cause I could keep talking about all these different angles and going down all these rabbit holes, which again, I love doing and I'm down for. Um, but I, I think so often the biggest thing that people are missing in this conversation is not, oh, they should agree with me. And it's like, it's they're morally bad if they don't or something like that. It's, I often think of it as a failure of imagination in that hmm. we so much take for granted the way things are like, like it was thought that there would and maybe this is true in a sense, but there would always be slavery. Like if, if you 200, 300 years ago talked about getting rid of slavery, that was like flipping the world upside down. Like it's like, no, there's always been slavery. There will always be slavery. That is the nature of the world. Like it, like mm-hmm. it, it was such, I mean, and it's to the credit of Wilberforce and like many others that like that, I mean, they basically managed to do it in a, I mean, amazingly, but it was so firmly believed that like that was an impossible institution to get rid of, that that, that was the way that it had to be, that they couldn't imagine if it were different. Like they couldn't like the question. I don't know. There's this, I think, libertarian sort of saying or something. It's like, well, if we got rid of slavery, who would pick the cotton? The answer doesn't matter. Like that's not the the point of the question is not us understanding exactly how everything would work um, in if things weren't the way they were. The point is that it is morally reprehensible and therefore it is off the table. And that's the the most most compelling argument for me uh, and where I'm basically sitting is that that taxation is morally reprehensible. It's not on the par with slavery, but it is unjustifiable. Right. It, it like I cannot there's nothing that I think is so important to do that I would hold you at gunpoint and take your money to do it. Right. Like I don't think that's justifiable. And I don't think that at scale, just because we get a thousand people doing it or ten thousand people doing it, that that it gets more justifiable. And so I, I this is the place I'm sitting and I, I there's a whole bunch of consequentialists like how would this work? What would happen here? And I get all that. And some of it it may just be true. It may be that like Luke's ideal moral framework for how we interact with each other is busted. Um, but that that's like fundamentally where I'm coming from. Well, I think the, I mean, I'm sure you know this is coming, but I, I, I think the standard rebuttal to the slavery thing is that it took a lot 
of violence and a lot of government power to get rid of slavery in the West. I mean, <laughs> we fought the bloodiest war in American history, followed by an even bloodier period of reconstruction where the U.S. US military was fighting the KKK followed by, yeah, but I mean, um, the, I mean, the so, civil rights movement later yeah. on, which, which, yeah, I mean, there were, there was a like, lot of government power a, behind the end of slavery totally. and, and there's a lot behind and government um, power this, can you know, be used for good. I, I, I like, I, <laughs> I also, I mean, I do agree with that. I think that it is a structurally unsustainable, like over time, that's like my, that's sort of my, like, consequentialist can, can you, case. I mean, can you define structurally unsustainable for me? Like I, I look at the civil war and I go, duh, yeah, it was structurally unsustainable. It collapsed in the civil war, but yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I will. I'll try to define that. Sustainability look like. So yeah, yeah. I think of it as something like, uh, I'm not going to try to become an expert in game theory or, or, or to pretend like I am, but the idea that there's like a sustainable game, something that you can keep playing, something that isn't working towards its own collapse. And I think that mm. the the centralization of state power and the zero-sum political game is like fundamentally unsustainable, that it works its way towards collapse, then it collapses, it's terrible when it does, and then it sort of starts up again. And we, let's take slavery, or for example, uh, or, or just to, to like address that point. And I want to start out by saying, I I know that, for example, in England, they were able to avoid they were able to get rid of slavery without having a war so i think it it could have been possible i i'm not i don't want well, to do it because they <laughs> i mean part of that is because england never had slavery on you know at scale domestically they were just they were just you know sustaining the slave trade uh between yeah. and, and Africa and America. I certainly am not capable of like relitigating the past and trying to create the counterfactual <laughs> of like how it would have gone in what certain case. And the, and what the reason I bring up slavery or that I did was really to make a point about the, the supposed inevitability of a thing like it. How could uh -huh. it be without that thing? It's always been around. That's the way it is. And I think similarly that is true with the state we, we we can't imagine how we could organize that we could have justice that we could have security that we could protect ourselves from invasion like we we don't know or or, or we fail in my estimation to imagine how that could be possible without the sort of centralized state that takes uh from us and that is the most of the sort of I don't want to say most of the argument, but that is like a very much sitting at the bottom of our sort of lack of curiosity of how it could be different. And so do I know whether how we could have gotten rid of slavery or what? I, I, I honestly don't. I have no idea what would have happened. It may be that like having that centralized government power on the like insofar as it's doing good, then, it, you know, like it can do that. And I think at times like, you know, it takes it prosecutes child molesters like there's things though again i'm not going to stand behind like the entire justice system by any means but it does do good things um i at the same time you know the government wrote the jim crow laws or different state governments like it wasn't those didn't exactly come out of the market the reason they had to have laws is because any given business person is on average more interested in their own money than they are like 
keeping down some group of people. And if you want to systematically keep people down, you have to sort of like, if you want to run a cartel, which is what that amounts to, then you have to like enforce uh, the sort of price thing that you're trying to do on everyone in the cartel. And so again, I'm, I'm, I'm turning a little bit sideways here other than to say, I don't know how it would all work out, but I think that it is fundamentally immoral. And I think and hope that over the course of time, we will learn to organize and engage with one another in a in a manner that is sort of voluntary that allows us the power to come and leave and to enter into relationships and out of them both like uh, with other people uh, in communities and even nationally politically and that that will be more sustainable and more peaceful in the long run and I think we will look back in time at the way that we have all these sort of nation states and these giant political structures. And we will look back at it as like barbaric. That's my thousand year hypothesis that I can't be proved wrong on. So don't even try. <laughs> Until I build my time machine. <laughs> yeah. And then you'll, yeah. You'll, then you'll see. see. <laughs> Uh, they, you go to like my statue in the middle of Moscow. Uh, so anyway, it, it, a lot of crazy ideas here. Uh, there's there. I mean, you know, there's a whole bunch of like really thinking around this, but this is the, the this is, you know, let's just be honest. This is just our crazy scheme for not letting poor people go to the doctor. These are facts. You know, that's really what we're all motivated by here is just making sure that poor people don't get access to medical care. That's, I mean, we all know it's true. I'll just admit it for the rest of us. Uh, libertarian anarchist people. No, obviously I'm joking. <laughs> I want to come back a little bit to, uh, to your story because I want to bring this to, uh, to a close. Um, so you come back, well, you leave Lincoln, you go to Harlem, you leave Harlem, you go to Spain, you come back from Spain, you come back to your hometown, you arrive at the place you started. You know it for the first time. That's a T.S. Eliot quote for our literate listeners. <laughs> um, <laughs> Over my head. No, but um, what's, what's what's that like? One of my one of my standard questions on the script is, uh, you know, do you have a coming out story? Like, do you do you find your way back to this kind of Republican evangelical world you grew up in? Do you um, how how do you relate to the people there now? I want to know. Yeah. It, so. Because I was never gone for like too long in a sense, like the longest of these was a year. Uh, I spent some time traveling in Central America in there. So I was like, I kind of, I did do a lot of leaving and coming back. And mm -hmm. I, I simultaneously appreciated it more every time I came back. Like I, this, mm -hmm. the things about it that are good, like were more clear to me and more like they just felt like home kind of. But at the same time, I was a little more, aware of where it was kind of inadequate and how it it just didn't quite make sense to me anymore if that if that adds up so you know mm -hmm. coming back from new york i definitely had a little bit I, I definitely had a different perspective on um well politics but it like i think new york what was really different was like was race i just was I worked at a like a restaurant that was explicitly described by the owner as like a black restaurant. I, I lived in Harlem. It just was it was just a different again, eye-opening like experience for me coming from where I come from. So like that I just had a different kind of outlook, almost like appreciation, um, an awareness of that that I didn't really have as much mm. of before. And then um from Spain, yeah, I I 
I don't know. I, I remember being really waking up almost every day for three months saying, why did I come back? I could be living in Madrid. It was amazing. Um, but I, I, I like, I don't, I don't remember like a, like a strong, um, sort of philosophical or like emotion around like how I related to here. Um, mm-hmm. so I, yeah, but the, so no, I can't like my failure to articulate this. I don't think should stand in the way of your basic point, which is that there is something very, very deep and powerful about like leaving and coming back, traveling, living mm-hmm. somewhere else. Like I, I don't, I, I can't quite articulate it, but it, it definitely, the word permission just comes to mind. I maybe because you said it earlier, but there is like a permission to think differently to, yeah, that, that I definitely felt, but I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I don't have like a super strong memory of like that crystallizing in a moment. I have three questions that I try to ask all my guests, um, just kind of general Philosophical questions, just kind of poke at these questions of ontology, epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, first of all, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? Ooh. What do you think? <laughs> hey, just the last three questions, quick, easy. What is identity? Uh, that's mm-hmm. a great question. I, I and, and you know, this is such a ugh, like all things political. It's become a weapon with which to fight each other with, you know, because politics destroys everything. Um, but I, yeah. I, I have, I think become more aware, like I have an identity as a, I have a lot of identities in there. I, partly I think they can be thought of as like labels that get applied to us or that we apply to ourselves. But I also, there's sort of like a part of our history, you know, like I, like, I think I'm a Christian whether or not I am one. Like, because that is so in the middle of like my story that it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just part of my identity and I am, uh, like, so yeah, I don't, I don't, if I can define it, that's really hard, but I feel like I have a lot of them and like in my mind, they're kind of overlapping with roles. Um, but yeah, geez, I, 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 I'm. (laughs) <laughs> I could I could use a little direction. There's like so much like it just triggered a whole bunch of interesting things, man. That's such a good question. Like, what is identity? Um, and I don't know that I know what it is, but I feel like in, in in changing what I think about things and what I believe about things, I've the hardest part of that is the part around identity and what how you relate to yourself and how you think of yourself and your own story. Um, like I've even found, Hey, I, you know, I used to be a sales guy at a roofing company and now I own a successful software company. And that sort of like identity is got a lot more like social cachet with it, but like, I'm the same person, you know, I'm still like kind of an idiot who like is a lunatic with his like political views, which now you guys all know, I can't hide that anymore. Um, so that, uh, that, yeah, uh, great question. And I'll think about that for 10 years and then maybe we'll jump back into it. <laughs> that that is an interesting uh point though the the difference between social cachet versus internal identity i'll have to think about that some more i don't have anything to say about it but well it's, it's an like interesting point. if you were to say hey i'm on like the version like which i think these are both true statements if you're like hey i'm a stay-at-home dad or i'm a published author 
like those are just yeah. different. Like they're both parts of your identity, like your dad and you're an author, but they're like, what, what does that mean? I mean, you're the same person and like, but it's how you kind of present in different places. And I, it's a, like, yeah, man, I'm going to be thinking about that a lot now. That's a really good question. Uh, part two of this is, um, what is human nature? Like, are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? Mm, what do you think? I, I don't think we are blank slates. I think that's I largely, yeah, no, I, I, I like, I think we are basically the same, but we are all very different. You know, like I think from a <laughs> look, look, it's like how many cliches can one man shout? Tune in to Luke and Luke. <laughs> um, it's like it's like it's like sort of like morally, we're all. I think we all sort of like fundamentally want the same things. Like we're really just versions of the same thing. You know, we're all human beings. And we sort of act as this like weird unit of humanity, you know, like each of us on our own would just die in the woods because we don't know shit about anything. Like we don't, you know, like <laughs> we're dead. Like, but like when we're all together, we're like, we're something, you know, and we, but, but then we're still totally individuals and you want certain things and I want certain things. So like, I think like there is definitely a way in which I think we're all the same. And it's largely like, like, okay, as, as, I would maybe have a good idea or someone would give me a compliment or I would think that I've been successful somehow. There's this tendency to be like, yeah, I'm better than other people. Right. Or to, to just like, Oh, mm. like, yeah. Like the, 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 the creeps in and you're in, in, in ways like there's things that I'm better at than other people. And there's things that I'm way worse at, but like mm -hmm. I'm mm. fundamentally the same as them. Like I, I am no different. I cannot in any way claim to be superior or like, like in the sense of cosmically, right? Like, I am, I have no claim to anything that any other human doesn't have as like my own, that, 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 that I'm somehow responsible for, I guess is how I would think about it. Right. Like I might be born taller. I might be born smarter, you know, but like, I, I'm not, I have no claim to that I, I, at all. And I, I believe that like really, really strongly, but I, but, but then again, we're all different, you know? So, Hey, take that mm -hmm. and chew on it, I guess. Finally, what is truth? Is there truth? How do you know truth? How do you know when you know truth? Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> like epistemology is fundamentally hard. And I, I think that there is. <laughs> put that on a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> epistemology is fundamentally hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's my quote. Uh, wow. Was that Aristotle? No, no. Just a guy that was on my podcast. Um <laughs> Uh, truth. Yeah. So I, I'm a big, I'm a big truth fan. You know, I, I like it. I'm looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, count me in, like I'll sign the petition. Uh, so <laughs> like I, to me, like truth is reality. And like, we're so like the things that we start talking about when we start talking about truth are like so abstract that they're, they're like, it's almost, they're hard to confirm or deny in a sense. But like, I, so I'm, I'm a believer in reality. Like it exists, it is there and there is truth. Like there is what's real. Like my certainty over, and this is going to sound, let me say something. <laughs> this is going to sound preposterous after the, the amount of like ridiculous rants I just went on. But like, I really do think that my <laughs> position is <laughs> extremely humble. And it's like, it's like, it's humble in this regard of truth. It's like, it's like, it's very careful to say, 
what like is true for sort of other people or how things need to be done. Like that, 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 that's the way that I actually think about it. I know that like people will be like smacking their heads like, wow, this arrogant like guy with his radical idiot philosophy thinks that thinks that it's humble. But like that, that in my mind, it is like, it is a, it is a sort of a very minimal, humble philosophy saying like, well, these are the things that we know are important. These are the things that we don't know. And like, so this is where we're going to be. And I guess I have come now to the point I'm 35 um, seeing I have little kids, which is like a, a blast. Please do it. it. It's really fun. You should do it. Um, <laughs> like try to do it in the right order because it's simpler that way. But like regardless, like it's just kids are the best. Um, but like there is reality. And if you are going against it, it's going to come back and bite you. You know, like you can't like go too hard against reality. But what I would like say I know to be true, that that list of things like is like shrinking throughout my life. You know, like I'm like I I I feel like a, you grow in humility as you get older and I I'm even though I'm stunted in that regard, like I'm trying to get to the path of where everyone else <laughs> would be and being less <laughs> sort of certain about uh about things and more open to it. But so yes, I I I don't know exactly where to find truth. Like um I I, I I kind of like, let's get back to Larry Flint or I feel like this was part of his like pornography trial or at some point someone said like, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. And I, I have Mm -hmm. sort of that vibe. Like I can like, you, you feel it and you see it, but like, it's one thing to know that like for myself, but when I, when I would be ready to almost impose that on everyone is that's like a really higher standard. And I struggle with, with what that looks like. All right, Luke. Well, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, you want to plug your company or anything else one more time before we go? Um, if you are interested in uh, further uh, insane rants, tune into Profe Luke on Twitter at Profe Luke, P R O F E L U K E. Um, company Cam, if you're a contractor. And otherwise, Luke, I think you're doing a great job with this show, man. I'm proud of you for doing it. I'm glad that you had me on. I had a really good time. And I really wish you the best of luck in the future that I hope this is really successful. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, this has been changed my mind with Luke T Harrington. I'm Luke T Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T Harrington, or just go to my website, Luke T I will see you next time. Internet. something I've been um, thinking about a lot lately, and I'm not really even sure why. Um, It's only tangentially related to my conversation with Luke, but um, I'm going to say it here because this is where I say the things I have to say. Um, So I guess if you don't want to hear this, uh, you know, this is pretty much the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Um, But there is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. which is a research paper I wrote my junior year of high school. Um, So this would have been about 2002. Um, My junior year of high school was the year that the um, September 11th attacks happened um, and the quote-unquote war on terror began. Um, Now, I don't have much to say about the war on terror itself. I'm sure Luke would... um, 
go off on it if he were here. Um, but what was happening kind of around all that was the rhetoric of President George W. Bush at the time um, shifted considerably. Um, and it got extremely religious in tone. Um, he kept talking about fighting a holy war and that sort of thing. Now, he wasn't particularly sectarian about it. Um, he was talking in very broad terms. Um, and, you know, he was very clear that we aren't fighting a war on Islam per se. We're fighting a war on these um, particular radical factions, which, believe it or not, <laughs> that for people who weren't around in the early 2000s, that was how we talked. Um, not so much anymore. But I thought he was pretty tasteful for the most part on the way he brought religion into the conversation. Um, a lot of people disagreed with me about that. There was a lot, a lot of um, backlash against his religious choice of language, which I get. Um, but I thought the backlash was a little bit excessive. So um, I was taking AP language and composition that year. And one of the big requirements of that class is that you write what they call an eye search paper, which I have no idea why they call it that, but whatever. It's just a big research paper, basically. The assignment is pick a question and try to answer it with research. Um, and it's it's pretty open ended. So I you know I was thinking about the reaction to some of uh, George Bush's language, and I said I'm going to write about the question: Is religion beneficial to society? I wanted to see if I could answer that question, or at least dive into why it was such a controversial question. And what I found, the conclusion I ended up with was that religion is absolutely foundational to society, which is not a conclusion I expected to come to. It's certainly not when I started the paper with. Um, but what I found was that religion as such predates civilization historically, and that all early civilizations, even up close to the modern era, were built on religion um, in a way that made it absolutely essential. And this, I don't think, is a terribly controversial position to take. It's kind of taken for granted among historians, anthropologists. Um, and, you know, I'm not a historian or an anthropologist. So now that I've said that, I'm sure I'm going to get letters from somebody. But I was extremely struck at the near universal consensus that religion is necessary for a society to exist at all. Now, before I completely lose you um, for saying that, let me try to put it in more concrete, less volatile terms. Um, there's a series of books uh, by an author called Jim Collins. Um, the first one he wrote was called Built to Last, um, and then there's a follow-up that he uh, calls a quote-unquote prequel called Good to Great. Um, there's a total of there's a total of six of them overall. Um, and the premise of the books basically is kind of this research-based approach to understanding 
how certain businesses either became great or remained great um, or stopped being great, I guess. Um, And he tries to talk about things in terms as concrete as he can. Um, So he defines greatness, for instance, in terms of outperforming the market average and that sort of thing, um, just so he can kind of really nail these questions down. Um, now I haven't read all of these. I've read good to great. That's the only one I've read. Um, but what he does in good to great is he says, okay, so here are our parameters. We're going to look for companies that matched the market average or did worse for at least 15 years and then exceeded the market average for at least 15 years. And we'll try to see what features they had in common that helped them move from like average businesses to really successful businesses, which is an interesting approach. Um, Now, one of the key features that he finds repeatedly in businesses that outperform the market is this thing he calls core values, which means, you know, things that are genuinely important to the company, all or most of the employees are on board with stuff that the company can say, okay, these are the things we are about. Um, And one of the interesting things he says is that it doesn't actually seem to matter all that much what the core values are as long as you have them, right? Like you might think that a good business has to care about its customers, you know? And he says, well, you know, Sony doesn't care about their customers. Um, you, you might think a good business has to care about quality. He says, well, Walmart doesn't care about quality. Um, and these are businesses that no matter what you think of them, they are clearly successful as the market has defined success. So then of course the question becomes, you know, what is it about this whole core values thing that makes these companies successful? And, you know, I think what it comes down to is that if everyone at the business believes in these core values, then everyone is going to be oriented in the same direction, working towards the same goals. And of course, at some point, if people see that you're this successful organization that believes in these things and they say, hey, I believe in those things too, then they'll start attracting people both as potential employees and potential customers. And there's a certain momentum that arises out of that. And, you know, that's the ultimately the sort of thing that leads to success. You can look at a company like Disney, for instance. They're a, this company that has had phenomenal success selling this very specific idea of like magic and goodness and that sort of thing and it's not something that really appeals to me all that much like there are disney movies i like disney movies i don't like whatever but it is something that seems to really resonate with people to the point that they're little they'll literally give their lives to disney to come visit their theme parks and possibly even work there and that sort of thing now why am i bringing this up i'm bringing this up because in good to great Uh, Jim Collins says, you know, I don't think what I do in writing these books is primarily about business. 
Um, he says, we write about these publicly traded companies because there is a clearly defined definition of success for these companies that most people kind of at least agree on in theory, if not in practice. And there is publicly available means of testing whether or not these companies achieve success. However, he says, um, I think ultimately this, these sorts of lessons apply to any organization of people. Um, so I write so that not just good businesses can become great businesses, but that good nonprofits can become great nonprofits, good families can become great families, good churches can become great churches, etc. Um, now, I don't know if you buy into that or not. Um, like, obviously, there are important differences between a business on the one hand and a family or a church on the other. But that being said, there are important similarities as well. These are all just organizations of people at the end of the day. And given that, I think the only reasonable conclusion is that a successful organization of people is probably going to have, among other things core values as Jim Collins has defined them. And of course, with a nation or a state, you're ultimately just talking about an organization of people. Um, and so when you come back to the question of why is religion necessary for the creation of civilization, I think that's your answer is that religion provides a really good means of instilling people with core values. Um, Jonathan Haidt writes about this some in his book, The, the Righteous Mind. Haidt is a, a moral psychologist. He um, examines the psychological foundations of morality. His catchphrase in his book is morality binds and it blinds. So the word blinds there is kind of the downside, right? If you're attuned to a certain moral system, a set of moral values, if you will, you're going to be blinded to the moral concerns of people who disagree with you, but at the same time, you will be bound in a meaningful way to the people who agree with you on these moral questions. Now, ever since the Enlightenment or so, um, we've had what's called, you know, the liberal experiment, this idea that liberty is the most important thing, that society's primary function should be to protect people's religious freedoms, their freedom to practice whatever religion they want or no religion. Um, and, I, you know, I can obviously see the advantages of that, but there are a lot of downsides as well, I think. Like Thomas Jefferson, um, one of the founders of modern liberalism, uh, famously wrote, you know, it does me no injury if my neighbor thinks there is one God or many gods or no God. And I think that we can all agree that what Jefferson wrote was technically correct, <laughs> that me sitting here believing in a God does not directly harm anyone. But at the same time, that it was a little bit short-sighted, I think, that religion is the, the most efficient means of transferring shared values into people's minds. And that if you and your neighbor don't have the same shared values, there is not going to be this automatic basic trust between you and your neighbor. Now, obviously, you can build a basis of trust with anyone, but if you have to do it individually with every single person you meet, it is exhausting for the average person. 
And ultimately, it guts the core values out of a society and leaves people isolated from each other. So when school shootings were a relatively new thing, or at least high-profile school shootings were a relatively new thing in the 90s, and certain religious conservatives were saying, well, it's because we've taken God out of schools. And certain liberals were responding with, oh, they're trying to instate theocracy, run for the hills. I think um, at some point what I realized that was that you know, the religious conservatives were probably half right. <laughs> not in the sense of, you know, God is punishing us for um, not praying in schools or wh wh what a, whatever simplistic way you want to take that. Um, but half right in the sense that in a society without core values, without religion, people are going to feel isolated from each other. And what do isolated people do often? they lash out, um, you know, and that that's not obviously to defend the sort of people that shoot up their high school or whatever, but it is to say that that is one of the results that come out of that. Um, now, I know the headline is going to be Luke T. Harrington is arguing for theocracy, but that's not really it. Like, core values are not something you can force on people. They're if you something you actually have to value or else they're not values by definition. Um, I think a lot of uh, businessmen read Jim Collins's books and said, well, my business has to have core values. So then they just randomly adopted whatever sounded good um, instead of asking themselves, like, what do we really value? Or instead of saying, what do I really value? And then trying to build a staff that also valued those things. Um, I don't think you can force someone to value something. So I don't know what the solution to the isolation that has resulted from modern capitalistic democracy is. I don't know what it is, um, but I think it's important to try to understand it. And it's obviously much more complicated than this, but I think this is a place to start. Now, how does that connect back to Luke and his anarchism? I don't know. It's just kind of what's been bouncing around in my head all week. And this is the part of the show where I tell you what I'm thinking about. So you can just deal with it. That's it for this week. I want to thank Luke for being on the show. Um, he's a cool guy. If you're in the roofing or plumbing business, do check out his business company, Cam. Um, I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. Please check out their other podcasts, The Commentarians and Faith and Other Oddities. If you're enjoying the show, there are a couple things you can do to help out. Um, you can buy me a cup of coffee at ko-fi, that's ko-fi.com slash changed my mind. 
I have a couple of books you can buy if you want to help out that way. I have a novel called Ophelia Alive. It won a few awards. It's a pretty decent psychological thriller. I have my upcoming nonfiction debut, Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible, to leave you amused, bemused, and hopefully informed. That won't be out to August, but you can pre-order it on Amazon right now. I have the novel I am writing live on the internet with my good friend, best-selling, award-winning author, KB Hoyle, which you can find at projectconarrative.com and support via Patreon. Or if you don't have any money and don't want to do any of those things, please just take a second to rate and or review the podcast on iTunes. I have promised to read every review I get on the air and make you internet famous. So here's the latest review from Gina D'Alfonso. She says, you're bound to hear something you disagree with on this podcast, guilty as charged. That's okay. In fact, you might just be glad you did. The podcast explores differing points of view and the process of changing one's mind in ways that are especially healthy, constructive, and valuable in this hyper-tribal, hyper-polarized culture. Luke is both gracious and incisive with his guests, and I particularly enjoy his end-of-podcast musings. Oh, thank you. You're welcome for this one, by the way. Definitely give this one a try. Thanks, Gina. You're the best. I appreciate you taking a second to review my show. That's all I have to say this week. Please... Check out my website at luketharrington.com or just find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington. I'd love to hear what you have to say about any of this stuff. Thank you for listening to Changed My Mind, and don't be afraid to change your mind. Mm-hmm.